I read this really interesting book called The Language of Creation. Uh, and it's a, a book evaluating the symbolic language encoded in the Bible. Oh. And one of the points that it makes is that human beings are, this is kind of interesting, actually, the, the, we intermediate between heaven and earth. Heaven being the sphere of ideas, morals, um, metaphysics, I guess you might say. And then, so, or, or more simply and more economically, you could just say heaven is like the realm of relevance that Austrian economics talks a lot about, you know, it's means and ends, right? Like an, an, a table is just a, a material construction until we imbue it effectively with our purpose, right? It can be an accessory or an obstacle or whatever. And then earth being just the realm of matter. So you think of like heaven is what matters, like Peterson says, and earth is matter. And we intermediate between the two with the story and narrative and all of this. Um, and so I see Ethics, I guess, is kind of that upper domain. It's like the heaven. It's like the North Star towards which we're pointing. Whereas strategy is how we're actually using the matter of the world to try and um, approach whatever we're aiming at. You know, so it's it's something very fundamental to life itself. You could, you could almost say humans are the medium of exchange between heaven and earth. <laughs> Yeah, to, to wander out in, in uncertainty and, and conquer it, right? And map it out and make it order, right? Yeah. And turn chaos into order uh, and the other way around, right? Again, humans can do both, both be destructive as well as creative. Um, Based on the way, where they're pointed, right? And that's where ethics uh -huh. comes into play. It's exactly. like using, using our objective reason to objectively determine where to point ourselves to create the most positive sum outcome. Yes. And then the strategy is sort of, I guess, follows that in some way where it gets more practical, right? Like how, how do we create property that's not viable and organize ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and here, you know, I think this ethic is really just a baseline. It's, it's not enough. Like it's, you know, it's the things that we can guarantee because we can logically deduce them that they are harmful, you know, all around. Mm -hmm. uh, we can just prove that. So if you go around raping and stealing and pillaging, then pretty soon you're going to have a bad life. Mm -hmm. Like that's guaranteed, you know? So doing these actions or breaking property, right, will always lead to a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. But, but it, it would be cool if it were that easy, right? But it's right, not. Right, right. It's uh, not like, again, there, yeah. there are like numerous other uneasiness things other than the man-made ones, right? Yes. And including, of course, aggressors who just uh, do unreasonable choices, let's say. Yes, yes. Um, so, you know, and this, this goes also then more into, um, uh, you know, into psychology. Like, not just not stealing from others is not good enough. Like, that's not, that's still not your full potential. You know, you can still do more. You know, instead of, you know, just not being a, a, you know, petty thief, you know, being not a thief, but still useless is also very, well, not enough. And I think things like, you know, family and, um, and like long relationships and good conversations are something that's, that cannot be proven as nicely as property rights can. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that it's not important, right? And that, that sometimes ignore or Sometimes knowing the limits that we can logically prove and then, you know, acting mercifully within those rules or limits mm -hmm. is going to be a much better outcome than always, you know, going to the edge of how much force can you legally apply. You know, again, like if you, you know, if you feel aggressed by... Uh, if you know, uh, going to the post uh, because you there's only the monopoly you know provider, uh, and therefore you go in with guns blazing, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and you somehow retrieve your package or something. I don't know. But if you're always this very 
aggressive and diligent type to, or sorry, I shouldn't say aggressive, but always this forceful type, you know, that, that kind of seeks out the confrontation, for example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that might not always be the best strategy, even though it would be an ethical strategy, right? So it, in the hierarchy of strategies, ethical strategies are strictly better than unethical strategies, mm-hmm. especially in the long run, but also in the short run, arguably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the huge spectrum of possible ethical strategies, there mm-hmm. is still a hierarchy of which are better. Mm. And that's where kind of morality comes in. And also, you know, your own individual creativity. Like mm-hmm. there's there's so much room for opportunity here that it cannot be predicted and, and outlined, right? The even though we're in that restraint of don't steal from others, don't break mm-hmm. private property, there's still, especially because it is so clearly framed, you know, and obviously defined, mm-hmm. contrarily to other methods of looking at the world, uh, it allows for infinite amount of possibility, you know, because even though you cannot steal, that limits a lot of things, right? Uh, but you can still voluntarily interact with anyone to do yes. whatever the fuck you want. Right. right, so that's that's even bigger than what you exclude. Yes, that's really interesting. Looking at the ethics of a strategy, in a way, right, and where the ethics aimed at not stealing is not enough. To your point, right, like it's important, but it doesn't. Even if even if theft is not possible, right, we assume we're on this perfect Bitcoin standard where property rights are just as perfectly protected as possible, there's still this huge spectrum of moral action, right? You could still behave immorally, even if property rights aren't aggressible or aren't transgressible. So if ethics aimed at stealing is not enough because reason tells us that we must protect ourselves from the unreasonableness of others which is the sphere of strategy in a way. It's like, it's like you can reason that stealing is not good. Okay. I'm going to choose to not do that for myself. That doesn't mean that everyone else is going to make the same uh, conclusion. They're not going to reach the same conclusion. So reason further tells me I now have to protect myself against their unreasonableness. Maybe people haven't, haven't done this uh, evaluation. And then that's where strategy comes into play or like, I need to set myself up so that I'm protected from the unreasonableness of others. Yeah, and here again, there are so many ways to solve that conundrum. And I think what has always been emphasized in the past was the power of education, Mm -hmm. right? That precisely because there are so many people who are both nescient and ignorant, right? Many just have never thought about it, didn't have the information available. Those are nescient. And then there are people who do know the information, know that they're doing something wrong, but still doing it despite that. Right. right? So that's always been the case, arguably that will always be the case. Um, So one way to achieve this is by education, to bring these ethics from which you are very convinced that they are useful, to make them common sense. Yes. Uh, Again, maybe, you know, so that this is the the rules by which everyone plays, basically, you know. Um, And arguably, well... You know, getting consensus on stuff like this is really difficult. And again, the humans are very creative in their conflicts as well. Um, and I, again, I'm not sure if, if Bitcoin solves that uh, completely. Um, but but yeah, but ultimately, you know, the idea of the cypherpunks wasn't, you know, to talk loudly about software. You know, it wasn't to shill Bitcoin podcasts. Right. It wasn't, that isn't the motto of, of yeah. uh, cypherpunks. It's write the code, you know, cypherpunks right. write code. Yeah. So that just means to build tools, publish them so that they are available for everyone and ensure that they're actually useful to people. Right. And then in the, des- in the designing of those useful tools, when you put, uh, well, the power of, of cryptography and software and game theory and all, all, all these possible things, but you can, you can kind of shape incentives. And, and once you again lay the groundworks, l- logical, reasonable consequences will follow. 
You know, right. if we have a world of full encryption where every communication is encrypted, if the people yeah. choose so, right, then theft becomes uh, and coercion becomes infinitely more difficult yes. because the aggressor has no idea what the victims are talking about. Right. right. And they, they, he doesn't know where they are and, and such. Right. He doesn't yes. even know which of these people are good victims. Right. Right. So this is where kind of the cypherpunk ethos maybe even differentiates a bit from Austrian economics, right? Or, or even mm. Christianity, which we're a lot about, hey, we need to teach, we need to preach. Yeah. Everyone needs to understand uh, these inalienable rights of individuals, you know, that we are equal to God, basically created yeah. in, his li- in, in, in his image. Um, and, and that this is something valuable and something good. And that if we follow that line of thinking that it will lead to a great outcome, um, while while cypherpunks then are like, well, you know, how about we just build the tools that make yeah that make right. a breaking of our principles really fucking difficult. Yes, and then let's see what happens. You know, it's a very reckless attitude. It's really it's it's a punk attitude. You know, I'm just gonna build it and deal with it. Yeah, yeah, excellent point there. You know, it's because even education itself, it's so important. Like it. it even cypherpunks had to be born from education, right? They, they emerged yeah. from our formalization of education over time, but it's not enough. And it becomes an attack vector itself, right? That's what modern statist academia is. It's a perversion of education effectively, right? So Keynesian economics, great example. That's just a totally corrupt um, excuse for, this, for centralizing the control of money and violence, pretty much. Um, maybe not the violence piece so much, but definitely the money piece. Um, and, you know, it's it's also the the having a trusted third party in between God and you, right? A priest yes. that that is right. connected to, right? That's right. that's also very contradictory in the in the cypherpunk ethos, right? That the code is open and you can right. read it and you right. can change it and you right. can do with it whatever you want. Yes. So cypherpunks are they're the entrepreneurs of the most one of the most if not the most strategic and defensive technologies in history which is encryption right so they're saying the ethics are great you can educate and point yourself in the right direction but when it comes to the practical implementation right uh the cypherpunks are operating much more in the sphere of strategy like how do you actually pull these ethics down and put them into something pragmatic and real whereas religion and education are you know, in the purest sense or more in that sphere of ethics, like which way do we point ourselves? Yeah. And, and this kind of also differentiates it from, from not being a political strategy, right? The political strategy would be let's convince the, the biggest right. thug in the room, so to say, to just, hey, please don't listen to us, you know, when, when we're having private conversations. That would be awfully nice of you. Right. You know, that's, that's the political realm. And yeah. maybe that's successful. You know, maybe you can build a governing structure of a, a monopoly on, on force that will then just not spy on people. Maybe that will work, you know? Uh, but of course, the other strategy that cypherpunks pursue is like, okay, sure, you can eavesdrop on our conversation. We're just going to have them unbreakably encrypted. Yeah. Uh, so good luck. You know, yeah, you just hear right. gibberish. Yes. What are you going to do about it? Yes. No, that's, that's a good point too. So the political means would be convincing through rhetoric, right? You're actually trying to, uh, I guess, impose your opinion or, or not impose. You're trying to persuade the other party to adopt your opinion with various uh, means of mechanisms of influence, let's say, versus the cypherpunk and the entrepreneur more generally. They're just appealing to your self-interest at the end of the day. It's like, hey, do you not want to be eavesdropped on? Is that in your self-interest? Well, then here's the tool. So, and again, that's what the entrepreneur is doing, right? It's just satisfying the demands of market actors versus trying to shape those demands, which is really interesting. Exactly. And on the income Satoshi Nakamoto, who is like, hey, I have this crazy idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's try. <laughs> and he unleashes this weird, you know, protocol that you can run on your software, on your computer. And, you know, it just creates this new monetary system that is censorable, you know, where you cannot yeah. rewrite history, you cannot spend something that's not yours, and you cannot stop anyone from being a full partner in in, in this network, you know, a full node. Yeah. Like it's, you know, and that the tech is out there. And, you know, Ron Paul has been yelling on to end the Fed 
for way too many years. You know, yeah. that's the political mean. I mean, no, it's, yeah. he's he's great for what he did, but it's just not cypherpunk, right? Yeah. And it didn't work. Guess right. what? This is right. always shouting right. did right. not right. end right. the right. fit. Yes. You know, all the campaigns and protests and everything didn't do jack shit. It doesn't you know, matter. They're printing yeah. more money than ever. Yeah. Uh, but the cypherpunk ethos makes a difference. Yeah. Right? It's like, sure, you do you and we do we, but we have some really cool ideas on how to be yeah. us. Yeah. Which that's so, man. It feels like you almost want to aspire to your higher self. Like you want to try to embody your ethical self above your strategic self in a way. But man, the strategic self is so much more damn effective. It seems like, like to your point, we've been preaching about in the Fed. There's still people like I went to George Gammon's conference. He's handing out hats, hashtag in the Fed. Yet he's still skeptical, semi-skeptical of Bitcoin. I'm like there's no other way to end the Fed other than Bitcoin. There's no other practical, not one practical alternative has got gained any traction whatsoever toward ending the Fed besides Bitcoin. But well, no, but but even Bitcoin doesn't end the Fed per se because it doesn't need to. Bitcoin works perfectly fine even when the Fed is in existence. You know, right, right. That's sure. the that's okay. the great thing. I'm sure in more the long term run, consequence, right? like, ultimately, the Fed will be gone. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Sorry to interrupt. I was just thinking long run that. You're right. Bitcoin is not like a, you know, something that turns off the Fed. But over time, I think it just makes it irrelevant. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, great volley there. So maybe now is a good time to segue into the state versus liberty. Um, and I know we've defined the state. But I think it's important probably just to revisit that definition and really solidify it as we start to lay out this dichotomy between really two opposite ends of the spectrum, which are statism and liberty. So what is the state like precisely? Yeah, this is a great question. And here again, Austrian economics and praxeology is unique. Um, you know, that's one of the first things that I come to understand about this is that they're not like, what is it? The state, mm-hmm. you know, the state doesn't exist. It's not a separate entity. The state is not an actor, mm-hmm. right? Um, the state is somewhat of a, well, it's, it's an ideology that leads individuals to act in a certain way mm-hmm. that breaks the private property of others. Yeah. Uh, and these people think that it is justified uh, yes. to steal from others. Um, and I think that's the crucial differentiation or that's the crucial definition of the state. Right. It's a, it's a violation of private property rights. Uh, so people steal from individuals. Yeah. Um, and the, the criminal thinks that his act is just and that he has the authority to do so. Right. So this authoritarianism that there can be a state where someone can steal from someone else and that's considered legit. Yes. Uh, that's, that mindset, that belief structure, I would define as statism. Yeah, that's a great point. So the state is premised on the viability of property. The state feeds on stolen property, effectively. This is yes. taxation, inflation, and conscription. Exactly. But so does a highway robber man. Right, mm-hmm. but the difference from a highway robberman to the state is that the highway robberman doesn't pretend or lie into your face uh, with that this is to your own benefit. Yeah, right? he points a gun to your head. He knows very well he's taking your money, and you can no longer spend it. This is right. not at all to your benefit, and he doesn't lie to you. Yet the state takes away your money via taxation and takes away your freedoms via regulation of how you can run your business, but with the official excuse and justification that this is for the greater good and that they right. are doing this to protect the children. Uh, and yes. that is, again, what differentiates it. This mentality to believe that stealing from, that individuals stealing from other individuals can be justified as long as they have the authority of the state. Right. Yeah, again, we're back to where the strategy is so compelling. When they have the option available to them, when I say they, it's like any group of humans that gets on in control of the monopoly of force or the monopoly on violence, they now have the power and option to confiscate property from others. And that's essentially what this is. And, and to your point, 
it's institutionalized theft. So it is justified in the court of public opinion, frankly, you know, legitimately or illegitimately. I'm not, you know, it gets very murky there. Some people would argue like, no, you need to control the money supply to control the economy, right? But we know that controlling the money supply, that means you are justifying theft, full stop, right? So there's, it gets a little blurry there. And then when you institutionalize, there's a great point too, and that Hoppe makes, the highway robberman, who's a criminal, right? That's a, that's a certain degree of uncertainty. If I'm transporting goods across space, I know I might get robbed here and there. But it's something I can protect myself against and insure myself against. It's an uncertainty I can deal with, right? I can hire armed guards. I could buy insurance on the shipment, whatever. When you institutionalize crime, there is no protection against it. There's no, literally, by definition, there's no way to protect yourself. Like inflation, for instance, there was really no way to protect yourself against inflation before Bitcoin. I mean, you could hold physical gold, I guess, arguably, but even that, you know, central banks hold 20% of the global gold supply. So it's like, so long as you wanted to use money, you were getting inflicted with inflation pretty much prior to Bitcoin. Um, and so this, that, when you can insure against uncertainty, you can keep uh, the process of civilization ongoing. You can keep lowering your time preference. Once you can gain, you can gain some, you can wrap that threat in, in some certainty. You can hedge against it. But when it's unhedgeable, right? When it's institutionalized crime and it's uh, a form of unpredictability that just you can, can't do anything about, this actually raises time preference and creates a de-civilizing effect on society. Yes, exactly. And, and Rothbard points out here also that uh, a, a state is regionally limited, right? So there is mm -hmm. some physical area in meat space where this group of people uh, have the monopoly of violence, so to say, where they're the biggest guy on the block. Mm -hmm. right? It doesn't really make sense to think of a state that has no physical power in, in a certain place, right? You need mm -hmm. to control scarce resources. That's what this is all about, yeah. right? This is all a question of resource allocation. And yes. one of the main resources is the physical resource, like land, you know, yeah. that's the big one. Your labor, your capital, of course, as well. But land is what, what identifies also the nation state of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. You know, this is also, or, well, I mean, the nation state is a, is a special incarnation of a regional monopoly on violence, right? There, there have been others before that, but this time around, it's quite crazy. <laughs> mm, right. Yeah. So it's, so we have the state, which feeds on the property of others effectively. Um, the ostensible purpose is to preserve property rights, right? So if someone, you know, tries to steal your land or other asset, you have recourse to this court or police system that would use the monopoly on violence to protect you from violence. I'm less convinced about that by the day, um, but at least that's kind of the ostensible purpose. But this is also interesting because the prime motivator of violence, you know, the carrot versus stick, if you will, the, the carrot that encourages, that incites people to violence is the fact that property can be violated, right? If someone, someone will only take the risk and expense of violent action. If there is some economic incentive on the other side of that, the economic incentive tends to be your property, whatever it is, they're coming to steal and take possess control. So by definition, it seems to me like, as we laid out earlier, the state is just antithetical to this other pole, which is in the title of the book, Liberty. Right. So how do we define liberty? Well, liberty is a, a uh, well, a state where there's no state. <laughs> <laughs> stateless state. I like a that. stateless state, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it it so it's it's when 
individual property rights are are protected and where trade is mutually beneficial and and voluntary uh, right. or i should say where trade is voluntary and therefore mutually beneficial yes. uh, th th that's really it like when pri private property rights uh, are established for for everything both for the body of individuals as well as for the scarce resources around us you know all the raw materials and such land of course as well um then that i i, I would call that liberty mm. um but here's also you know a bit of a nuance because um i there's this great uh school of thought called vonu uh, meaning voluntary but not vulnerable right and it combines both to and puts an emphasis on that not just to live in a voluntary interaction with your peers but also to protect yourself from any type of coercion and mm. here the the state of vonu or the or the intensity of it is defined by the time frame between the source so of the mean time of harassment so what's mm. the time in between the the time points where you got harassed in any shape or form where you get where you did get your property stolen mm -hmm. where you co where you were coerced to act in a shape that was not according to your free will choice mm. right so um but again this is this is a strategy Right, that that focuses with a success metric, meaning let's increase that time in between coercion slots. Right? Mm. It's not that we're going to eradicate it, but just let's prolong the time of peace. That's interesting. Okay, so that makes me think of, I have this kind of a theory that I, I wrote about a little bit, and I'm still developing it, so maybe this, this conversation could help. So if you may, like people have heard of bootstrapping process in a computer and this used to be the old school computer bootstrapper was you loaded in a physical card with certain holes punched in it that was basically the simplest program that was physically uh, embodied on that card and it would instruct the computer to run a slightly more complex program which in turn would instruct the computer to run again a slightly more complex program. And it and this iterative process is what bootstraps the computer. So you're you start to start up a computer, and every computer goes through this process. It has to start with the simplest, most basic program, and then it runs successively, successively more complex programs until you get all of these options that a modern computer affords you today. We know that we're all running on software, right? This is, we're running on literacy. We're running on numeracy. These are relatively complex forms of software that we haven't had throughout all of human history, right? It took a long time to get here. So do you think, my, my hypothesis here is that the state is perhaps part of this interpersonal and or socioeconomic bootstrapping process that human beings undergo, right? We needed to, um, because one of the things, for instance, with, with writing, right? Writing was clearly a big psychotechnological breakthrough for us. The earliest written records we know of were tax tables. Tax tables are imposed by the state as the state tries to consume uh, resources, right? And use resources. So do you think the state perhaps was a necessary stepping stone on our on the path towards civilization and the discovery of reason even? Because to your point, no one before Rothbard, whenever he wrote this book, had really enshrined reason and property as kind of like the, the foundation of ethics. But we could have never got to this point without this long history of of violence and state failures and, you know, observations about all these problems. So my, my point here is that you think the very basic caveman running a very simple program, right? He may not even have literacy. He's just violent and he has very, very high time preference just trying to survive. But through these successful generations um, of really economic, increasing the division of labor, so increasing our economic abundance, we are able, we're, we're bootstrapping ourselves to run more and more complex programs that at some point we don't need the state anymore. Maybe we just evolve past the state. Do you think the state is a necessary prerequisite on that path? That is such a great question. And 
I think I'm a bit pessimistic here because I'm not even sure if the state is a transitory face. You know, uh, again, like it's just so tempting to steal for every individual. Like it's, this is, you know, again, we can choose whether to do good or to bad, whether to be uh, prosperous and, and, and uh, you know, grow or to be destructive. Um, and as long as there is the quick and easy path out there and without any major consequences instantly afterwards, basically, um, then, uh, well, I, I think it will just keep happening. You know, again, it kind of makes us human. You know, this is this is what it means to be human, to choose between good and evil. Uh, and if we would have a world where all of a sudden humans always choose good and never evil, well, we would be in a complete different world, right? right. Because that's just not how I yeah. work, you know? Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. So I'm not sure if it's transitory like that. Um, and but the, so the, I think that the major win here, because that it, it might sound pessimistic, but maybe it's not that much. But I think right now, many people are nascent. I'm again, holding on to the point, but many people simply have never really thought about what the state means right. and the consequences that it has. They've they simply never cared to think about it because, well, life is busy, you know? Yes, right, <laughs> right, right. You know, not everyone needs to be a master on economics. It's just, right. if you're not, you shouldn't be a loudmouth about it. Like some Rothbard <laughs> said something like that. Um, but looking uh, at you, Keynesians. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what I think that we can do is that when more people become conscious about their power of, of choice and yeah. that it's actually in their hands to do good things instead of bad things and to not right. steal from others. And as soon as they do that, they've done a massive leap forward towards the right step of prosperity and, and flourishing. I, I, I I, I, that's the thing is that I, I think that at least we will get the people who just have not yet thought about this before, right? Yeah. The, the nation people. But I just don't think that we will get rid of the ignorant people who very much understand economics, who do understand the consequences of, of their actions, but still find justification for it, right? Um, that level of ignorance is, again, fundamentally human. Like we make yes. up good excuses like crazy, you know? Yes. So we're very good at that. We're, we will probably continue to be. And therefore, I just think that this theft is going to be around uh, for, for a long time, but we might be able to decrease the level of it. Yeah. So agree. It doesn't seem like the state would go anywhere, but it does seem like through these advances... We're, we're limiting their options for theft, right? Like again, Bitcoin being a prime example, Bitcoin basically eliminates inflation as a revenue option for the state in the long run, right? Because the more you inflate, the more people are going to be like, I want inflation resistant money. And then in theory, people all migrate their capital uh, into Bitcoin over time. So there is this, I agree with you. There's this, and I've, I've described this as human beings as inexorably seeking something for nothing. This is what the entrepreneur is doing, by the way, trying to solve a problem 
more cheaply, efficiently, higher quality, right? He's, he's literally trying to get something for nothing. To increase your productivity is to effectively get something for nothing, right? I was picking oranges by hand. All of a sudden, I got a stick and I can pick twice as many oranges per hour with a stick. I'm getting something for nothing, right? That's that's investment, savings, investment, innovation. Well, I mean, wait. But, but you can but cross you that line. Sorry, just to finish the point, to your point, we're always going to be good. You know, you can cross the line into evil, which I guess you would say is the line of property. Once you start trying to get something for nothing f- from the work of others, where you're violating their property, you've now, you've gone from the noble pursuit of the entrepreneur to the ignoble pursuit of the statist or thief. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I'm not even sure if it's enough. You know, that's the thing. Like, a bit, because, you know, for example, Rothbard says that lying is all right. You know, if you, mm. if you just lie, basically, and break promises, you don't break individual private property, right? So, uh, but that's the thing, right? If you would go around lying about everything all the time, it would be a pretty... Well, he says it's, it's legally okay. He doesn't say morally, though, right? He yeah, distinguishes. Yeah, exactly, right? But this is just, again, one example that only not stealing is not enough. Right. Right. So uh, that's where I wonder if we can can like play this further and and really get more morals um defined in a way that we have to find property rights. Mm. I I the thing is just that that's super difficult to do. Right. And I'm honestly baffled that we have that solid argument for property rights. Like that's already crazy. Yeah. You know that we can logically prove that hey, if if everyone does that, that's very stupid. Like yes. always, all the time, yes. by definition of our right. existence. Mathematics. You know, I mean, that's solid. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. solid. Yeah, great point. And um, one further complication I think about is like, okay, pre Bitcoin. To your point earlier, we can't all be <laughs> sitting around studying economics and praxeology all day. You know, people are busy; they have to work. So they need to defer this expertise to others. And I'm just thinking, just think of pre-Bitcoin world here. The individuals that did spend the time to get to this level of understanding are now faced with quite the dilemma because they're in a privileged intellectual position. It's like, okay, here's how the world works today. There are these institutions that prey on others. There are predatorial institutions. You could, let's just put Central banking and the nation state in that bucket, they're predatorial institutions. They're, they're predating the properties of others, the property rights of others to survive. You now, as an intellectually uh, advanced or privileged individual, sort of face a dilemma. Like, do I position myself on within the predatorial institution and benefit and become wildly rich and powerful and all these worldly things? Or do I use my you know, uh, knowledge to try and educate the prey, how they're being taken advantage of. So it puts someone, it it puts someone in this very interesting position where they kind of have to weigh their financial, uh, well-being or even their power, their position in this, in the geopolitical power structure against their moral integrity in a way. And so it seems like a lot of people have kind of taken the first choice. It's like once you get to that position, and you've seen this with people like Alan Greenspan, early on in his career, is writing about how the gold standard is so necessary to keep uh, a check on governments that you know humans to have gold as an option for money was necessary for liberty. All of the he's very libertarian, and then whatever, 40 years later, he's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, like completely bullshit lying, everyone saying they'll outlaw gold if they need to. So he just like, I think he's a good case study for that progression that a lot of people have faced. But again, it's based on the institutions available because I think Bitcoin sort of breaks that a little bit because now all of a sudden you can hold your savings in Bitcoin and you have you can now align that, uh, you can become... I don't want to say wealthy and powerful, but you can at least protect your purchasing power in a way you never could before and go and preach the truth and like share the truth with people that are being preyed on by these predatorial institutions. So it's almost like the morality percolates up from the the technological realities or institutional realities available to us. 
Does that make sense? Yes, and it it goes again towards the alloki- uh, the analogy of the cave, right? You you are in darkness. You see the the shades on the wall, and you have this very limited view of how things actually are. Mm-hmm. And you go outside of the cave. You see the light. You see the colorful reality. And now you have, you know, now you have the the option. Like, what do you do? Uh, I guess one thing uh, would be, you know, to go back, be quiet, never talk about it, right? Even though you know it, uh, you're you're silent about it. Right? That's again ignorance, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, then the other way would be to to go back and actually try to use this to your advantage, right? You have this this knowledge differential, this power mm-hmm. differential. Um, and you could very much exploit people by telling them a great story and and you know somehow using this to your advantage yeah. to steal from them, right? To yeah. convince them to do stuff that they would not otherwise have wanted, yeah. let's say. Um, and uh, or you know another alternative would be to you know go out of the cave and never come back, you know, and just to completely yeah. abandon them and to leave them in in darkness, so to say. Um, now, how would Rothbard tackle the question of what to do about this? And I think it's, it's, it's again, ultimately comes down to division of labor. If you educate your people, if, uh, if you tell them about how economic reality manifests, mm-hmm. and if you educate them about the reason that freedom is and the irrationality that statism is and the logical contradictions of it, then very likely they will understand their individual sovereignty and protect their property and become, therefore, a much more useful partner in the division of labor mm-hmm. at right? benefiting everyone. Yes. Um, so because that will benefit everyone, because that will be this, because this will lead to the flourishing of this, this group, therefore, it is an ethic that everyone can strive towards. Mm-hmm. Now, that's kind of the reasoning why you should go out there and educate. That's a great point. Um, Again, it seems like Bitcoin kind of fundamentally makes this process at least much more feasible, if not even possible, because it, trying to educate people prior to Bitcoin, it's like, okay, what do we do about it? Again, it's the end the Fed thing, right? Before Bitcoin, it's like, okay, what are we, you guys want to go protest or write a petition? Like nothing, the Fed was immune to all these political attack vectors because it's the master of politics, right? It owns the money supply. It'll buy whatever influence it needs. So... um and so, you know, you brought up Plato's cave, which I think is interesting. It's There's kind of a wrinkle there where as the educator telling people, hey, these institutions are predating you. They're you can also be viewed by those people you're trying to help as kind of the tinfoil hat guy. Like, okay, sure, everything's corrupt. And this, I think this was largely the way people critical of central banking before Bitcoin were viewed. Right. It's like, what are you talking about? You know, the Fed is fine. It's a government, whatever. The libertarians were considered largely crazy by most people, the broad population. So that was that further complicates that dilemma. Right. The individual trying to go and educate people, hey, here's the problem in the world. And what if they resist you and even demonize you? Then you're even more likely to be like, all right, well, F it. I'll just go get close to the fiat currency spigot and do what everyone else does. Right. You just you play the game. And it reminds me of that quote, maybe it was H.G. Wells, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. Mm-hmm. So it seems like, again, pre-Bitcoin, we were just so far from the truth. And we're still so far from the truth. But I'm saying Bitcoin at least gives us this anchor to truth around which we can rally. And we're, it, it is gaining so much credibility in the minds of people. It's like, oh, wow, central banking is a complete load of BS. Um, in a way that wasn't possible 20 years ago, if that makes sense. So, all right, yeah, rant I think over. That's uh, just something I no, think. I, <laughs> great rant. And I, th- uh, you know, I think that there are two aspects here that make Bitcoin unique. And one, one is that you, or so the, the first basic one, or now let's say the first that you bring up, right. Is that Bitcoin gives you the hope of how to do it in the future, right? Bitcoin solves you solves a problem for you, right? You're kind of like a starving rat and, you know, you have food in front of you. You're going to run very quickly towards that food, right? But maybe that's... Defense against predator. That's that's what comes next, kind of. Like, if you would spray the cat odor over that rat from behind, Mm -hmm. you know, 
that rat is going to run a hell of a lot faster, mm-hmm. right? So if you combine the the fear instinct of something bad happening behind you mm-hmm. and a positive incentive in front of you mm-hmm. that, oh, look, there's something nice that I can look forward to and work towards, mm-hmm. right? So you're fearful and running away from something, so to say, and towards something else. That's where the 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 rat, at least in experiments, runs the fastest and with the yes. much with the most force. And so Bitcoin really combines both of that because, I mean, to be honest, I'm scared shitless about the consequences of the decade of or century of fiat empire that we had. Yeah, like that is that is a huge cat behind me that I'm yes. sincerely afraid of because yes. shit's gonna get ugly. Yeah, I'm I'm convinced of that. Yes, right. So th- that's that makes me already running towards away from. Uh, uh, the, yeah. the fear. But then on the other hand, I see Bitcoin and I have this inc- incredible hope of what could we just possibly build with right. this beautiful tool at hand and with all these nuanced and intricate incentive structures that emerge from it. Mm-hmm. Like that potential future that I can envision is incredibly bright. Mm-hmm. And I think that just perfectly explains why I am so motivated and why so many other Bitcoins are so staggeringly motivated because they understand the collapse that is standing behind right. them and they can envision a future that they can work towards. Wow, that's beautifully said. And it Bitcoin honestly is accelerating the collapse too. So it's kind of, <laughs> you know. Oh no, yeah. Which is very ambivalent because it's a net positive long run, but this transition, the collapse itself is very scary, right? That is the fear motivator. But you see, and then the, the more people run towards Bitcoin because it's that hopeful thing, the more they will probably fear what, what is collapsing behind them. Yeah. So it's kind of this perpetual speed up. Yes. But, and that sounds crazy, but maybe that's exactly what we need, right? Yes. Because we should have cleaned up our economy like in 1930 or 1914, one year after right, we created right, the right. Fed, right? That yes. should have been the death throttles of this whole system, yeah. right? And we didn't do it after the First World War and after the second and after the third and fourth right. and fifth or right, consider right, it also right, the right. first. But now finally there might be really something that, 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 that forces us to change things quickly. Right. And that's because that fear of our mistakes of the past and the realization that we can fix it and stop making the mistakes for the future, yes. that together is very powerful, a motivation for many, many people. That's a brilliant framing, actually, that Bitcoin's creating its own carrot. It is its own carrot, like holding Bitcoin, we're educating about Bitcoin. It's giving people these insights. It's making people more wealthy. I mean, I am humbled and like, brought to chills many times when I re- go through the messages people send me. It's like, thank you for telling me about this, you know, that it changed my life in all these positive ways. But Bitcoin's also generating its own stick, right? By actually collapsing this thing behind us, which is, and, and increasing awareness to your point. Like once people start to study Bitcoin, they may have been blind to this thing called the state previously, but all of a sudden they're aware of it. And they're like, oh, now I see and I see that it's collapsing, I'm going to run this way even harder and even faster and try to tell as many people as I can along the way. And that's the game theory of hyper-Bitcoinization. That's so, that's such a great way to think. I had never thought about the game theory that way. That's really interesting. Um, that's, wow. that's, I think it's very deeply rooted psychology, psychologically. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about it, again, to stay in that, point of view like in the past first of all most people were just willfully ignorant you know i don't want to think about that at all like leave me alone you know many people were nascent but but those people who did understand right and and understood the danger that is behind them yeah uh, you know they were fearful very much but they did not see they didn't have hope they didn't have something to run towards you know they were only running away from something yeah. And if you are in that pure fear mentality, I think that this is very dangerous to be in because you will make, well, you're going to be under a lot of pressure, making a lot of mistakes, and it's going to be a very stressful environment, probably not well made for your long-term success. Yeah. And adding a hope to that situation, even though 
you still have the dangerous cat running behind you, at least you see a way out. At least there is something now, not just to run away from, but to run towards. And that, again, turned, that's so much more meaningful, right? Because as soon as you walk towards something, that is that is what is meaningful yes. right and that is better than to run away from something um and uh it seems that we were forced to only run and to we're always on our back heels for the last century yeah and bitcoin all of a sudden drops in that hope of like how about you no longer need to run how about we just get into this parallel universe of encrypted cyberspace and the cat has nothing to hurt you right it's almost like Bitcoin has encapsulated these ethics Rothbard is laying out in a strategic implementation, right? So it's combined, it's sort of the bridge between these two worlds, right? Where here's the direction we need to go, the ethic, and then here's how we do it, the strategy. They're now both sort of <laughs> put together in Bitcoin. Yeah. Wow. I, I think, and oh, this is also so important, and it's highlighted especially in the book "The Second Realm," uh, mm-hmm. written by Smuggler and XYC. It's a great book on strategy, mm-hmm. uh, and and here they highlight that for this cypherpunk philosophy and viewpoint, for this crypto anarchistic viewpoint, it is of the utmost importance that a adherence to our basic principles of property rights shall never be broken regardless what the justification is right we we always need to stay on the side of defense and not on on the attack side yeah. um especially when it involves uh you know innocents uh and and just bystanders and civilians you know again bureaucrats are ac- actively stealing from them so yes. you have every right to defend yourself yes. but again you don't have the right to to kill the bystander just because you were on the mission you know right. to defend yourselves so the that aspect to be firmly grounded in what we know to be true and that is property rights mm-hmm. that gives you a lot of power and even a small minority of of people who are dedicated in their understanding of their sovereignty and in their their acknowledgement of the power they have to manifest their will in mm-hmm. accordance to truth. Mm. That small group of people can move mountains that status people could never do. Mm. Beautiful said. I think it's a great place to put a button on it. Um, wow, this is really okay. I came into this whole book with some reservations and I don't know. I didn't know that I saw eye to eye, but now that I see this delineation between ethics and strategy and now Bitcoin kind of being a unifying force between the two, my mind is getting blown. (laughs) No, it's so funny. I think I did in, I forgot the time, like 2017 or 18, I did a, a YouTube and podcast series called Read Rothbard and Use Bitcoin. What's the title of the playlist? You know, talking all about how the Austrian economics affects Bitcoin. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it really is like, dude, that's a power combination, man. You yeah. read Rothbard and you understand praxeology and you understand the reasoning behind your own freedom. Yeah. And then you use Bitcoin, which is the unfuckwithable tool to manifest those yeah. principles into existence here yeah. and now. Right. I mean, if that does not blow you off your feet, I have no idea, but you're not paying attention. Right. Yeah. 